The following message is from New Life Gillette series, Follow Me. This week, Pastor Mike presents part three of this series. Yeah, good morning. It is good to be here. Happy Father's Day. We got some awesome fathers in this church. I don't know if you know that or not. Uh, One of the areas that our church is growing most in right now and where we're seeing the Lord work uh, the most right now is in our men's ministry, in our uh, men's life groups. They're growing like crazy. God is drawing people to himself through our men's life groups, and so we're celebrating that um, as a church, and so we see that in families. When men draw closer to God, it has a direct, undeniable impact in, the, in, their, in their personal lives, but also in the lives of their families, and so we celebrate that right now. And thank you, men. Thank you, that are, those of you that are uh, prioritizing your relationship with the Lord and drawing closer to Him. Um, I celebrate that, and I bless that, and I love that. For Father's Day, I guess, Dad, I've got a gift for you. It's a theology lesson. I hope that's okay. Uh, today's message is a little bit heavy on theology. I'm going to preach through the chapter of Hebrews 12. Um, it's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, and you probably know that because I've been referencing this chapter a, a lot lately. I talked about it in my podcast, and I got excited about it, so I've been pulling parts of Hebrews 12 and sticking it into passages um, in my sermon. So as I preach this message, you're going to say, didn't we just talk about that? Didn't we just talk about that? And yes, we've talked about bits and pieces of it. Today, I want to go all the way through the chapter, the the big chunk of the chapter, um, and talk about it in terms of what does it communicate to us as Christians, as followers of God, and I believe it gives to us a tremendous amount of freedom and courage and, and an ability to seek God in a way that can really make an impact in our world and make an impact in our lives. And this, this chapter does that in a unique way. It does it by pointing out a sinner talks about a sinner. And no, it's not you. It, 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 take, it goes through, okay, rack your brain, go through uh, the history of the Bible and think about who is the worst sinner of all this, pa- this chapter is about to tell us. And um, you would assume it would be Pharaoh or some other ruler that was evil or some uh, false god worshiper, priest, or something like that. Nope, it's none of those. Or maybe you'd think it'd be a a tax collector or a prostitute. No, actually, Jesus kind of put them on his inner circle. It's a different kind of sinner than what you would normally think of. In fact, when you think of this person from Scripture, you don't even think of them as the sinner. When you think of this person from Scripture, you think of them as the victim in the story. Yet this passage points them out as the ultimate kind of sinner. So if you haven't guessed who I'm talking about, we will get there. Let's dive into Hebrews chapter 12. It goes like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Talking to racers, we're all in a race. Really, that's what life is. He's like, strip off the weight. What's the weight? He says, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Run with endurance. Take off the weight so you can run longer or you can run faster. When I was in high school, I played basketball, 
And uh, the cool thing, yes, don't be too surprised. The cool thing to do when uh, we played basketball in high school was we would wear weights around our ankles. Anybody else do this? Be honest. Yeah, oh yeah, somebody did. Uh, we wore weights around our ankles that looked like this. Um, yes, we were cheesy and nerdy, and that was my high school career. Wore these all the time. Why? We thought if we wore these weights around, um, they would make us run faster when we took them off, right? Or, or if you normally have weights on your ankles, when you take them off, you jump higher. I don't know if that actually worked or not, but supposedly it, it worked for us. Um, but that is not the kind of weight that the author of Hebrews is talking about here. He's talking about a kind of weight that does not make us stronger, but actually slows us down. So rather than picturing these weights, he's telling you to picture this weight. It's the old ball and chain. I'm just showing, no, I'm not showing this because it's Father's Day. It has nothing to do with that, men. It's <laughs> not what I'm talking about. The way he's talking about makes us slower and less effective. By the way, I found this image on Amazon, so if you would like to buy this ball and chain, you can. You just have to search deluxe ball and chain. This is the deluxe version. I don't know what the cheap version looks like, but this is the deluxe. So how do we take off this sin? If the ball and chain is sin, how do we take it off? Well, it's not what you'd guess. You would not guess that the way to take off sin or remove sin from your life is what the author of Hebrews is about to say. He says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. It's about focus. What has your attention has your heart. What has your focus has your life. By keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. He initiates and he perfects our faith. See, we're, we're tempted that when we recognize we need to re remove a sin from our life, that we got to try harder. That's what we think, right? I'm really sorry. I have a sneeze coming and it is like right on the verge. So I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to stop talking and let it come or if I'm going to pretend like it's not happening. I'm okay. I think, I'm, I think it went away in saying that, but... What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So we're tempted, we're tempted that when we want to stop sinning, that the way you stop sinning is just try harder, right? Well, if your strategy in stopping sinning is trying harder, you're just making the inevitable failure a little bit more difficult because you're going to fail, right? I mean, we saw generation after generation of Israel trying to be perfect, trying to follow God, trying to do the right things and obey all the laws, and they just failed time after time. Even the best of the best failed time after time. If your goal in trying to remove sin from your life is try harder, you will fail. God's advice for removing sin from your life is not try harder. Trying harder not to sin just makes the inevitable failure feel more painful. So God's wisdom is not try harder, it's follow me. That's the strategy. Consume yourself. Fill your life. Fill your mind. Fill your time. Give it all to God. Surrender to Him. That, that there's not, you've, you've filled your life so full of God that there's not room for those other things. If God's just something that you do on the side or just something that is a hobby for Sunday mornings, 
you are going to lose this battle. It's like trying to lose weight by taking a pill. Anybody ever tried that? It may help for a a short time. It may even work temporarily, but inevitably it is just going to lead you to failure. You need something more. Long term, it will fail. And this passage tells us that Jesus is the champion of our faith. You are not the champion of your faith. You can't get it right. Only He can. What if the Kansas City Chiefs, greatest football team in the history of sports, tried to win a Super Bowl without Patrick Mahomes? No amount of trying harder could make that happen. They could try as hard as they want, but without Patrick Mahomes, they would fail. Why? Because we've put all of our faith in Patrick Mahomes and money. He's got it all. Like, we just, we put all our eggs in that basket. If he, if, if he gets hurt, we know there's no hope. We're just done. He is the champion and perfecter of our team. We just kind of put our hope there. Trying harder for the Kansas City Chiefs without Patrick Mahomes will not work. They say there's no I in team, but there is an M for Mahomes. So... So we've put our hope in Mahomes, and we put our faith in Jesus, like in things that really matter in our lives, because, because of the joy awaiting him, referencing Jesus, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of, focus on, pay attention to. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. If you will focus on him, if you will think about his sacrifice, if you will think about him, then you won't become weary and give up. Set your eyes on Jesus. Allow him to build your faith muscles So, the question is, how do we set our eyes on Jesus? It's that last song we just sang. I surrender. Surrender to Him. Give Him your time. Give Him your money. Give Him your energy. Give Him everything. Surrender to Him. De-emphasize your plan for this life and emphasize His plan for this life. De-emphasize the physical reality and emphasize the eternal reality, the spiritual reality reality in your life. Let His instructions set your agenda. Let His directions set your schedule. Fill your life with Him. After all, you have not yet given your lives, your physical lives, in your struggle against sin. You still got some fight in you. Run with endurance. You're not done. You remember how death entered the world? It was Adam and Eve. They were supposed to live forever in perfect harmony with God in the garden. It was going to be all great. But sin brought death into the world. And what was their sin? What was the sin that that they committed that brought death into the world? It was a sin of control. 
They were jealous of God's control. They wanted control. They wanted God's wisdom. They didn't want to just trust Him. They wanted to be in charge. This is how it went. The serpent, which the Satan, same word. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? No, he didn't say that. The serpent, the, the tempter, the, the uh, deceiver is switching God's words. How does the woman replied? Of course we may eat free fruit from the trees in the garden. The woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Notice the consequence of sin. There's only one option for sin here. If you commit this sin, you will die. Death is the consequence of sin. The serpent replies, you won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God. What's the temptation? What he's tempting the woman with, Eve with, is that I want to be like God. I want control. I want the wisdom. I want the power. Knowing both good and evil. Satan's wise. The, the serpent is wise. And he is tempting Eve with control. She didn't want to rely on God. She wanted to be like God. So she, so she decided that she was going to follow the serpent's lies rather than God's truth. And this is what we do when we try to become holier by trying harder. I want control. I want to earn my salvation. I want to be good enough. I want people to be impressed by me and how much self-control I can have and how much sin I can avoid. And we're committing the same sin. We try to take from God what only He can accomplish. We try to take control. Verse 6, the woman was convinced. Really? She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some fruit, some of the fruit, and ate it. Now, the rule was don't eat the fruit. But the rule wasn't really about fruit, right? It was about loyalty. It was about who will you follow. She was tempted by the beauty and the taste of the fruit, but it was not those things that got her because she saw the beauty and the taste she saw that that was available to her long before the serpent came along. What the serpent did was add on extra temptation to the beauty and the taste. She was able to resist until the serpent lied to her and told her that she could have control. And this is where each of us find ourselves in our lives. The Satan, the serpent, is lying to you too. And if you are being lied to today, there's a good chance you've already tuned me out. There's a good chance you're not listening to me today. And you are in a battle of who will have my attention? Who, who will I listen to? Who will I follow? Who will I give my attention to? The serpent is telling you that 
filling all of your time with entertainment or with hobbies will eventually satisfy you. The serpent is telling you that political battles are worth your heart. The serpent is telling you that if, if you have sex with, with the right person or, or if you, with enough people or that in some way sex, even though it has never done so in the past, will eventually satisfy you. The serpent is telling you that your, in, your appearance defines you. That what you look like is the most important thing. And when you look in the mirror, all of your worth is determined. But God has a different truth for you. God has a different message. So let's jump back into Hebrews. He says, And have you forgotten the encouraging word God spoke to you as his children? What's his encouraging word for you? He said, My child... Don't make light of the Lord's discipline. That's not encouraging. Discipline? How is that encouraging, Hebrews? Don't make light of the Lord's discipline. And don't give up when He corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those He loves. The Lord, He does it. He disciplines those He loves. And He punishes... Now, these are two different things, apparently... And he punishes each one he accepts as his children. God does two things. Disciplines and punishes. Let's look at these two words in the Greek. What is the difference between disciplining and punishing? The word for disciplines here is the word paidu. Did I say it right, Paul? Paidu, that's what it is. Disciplines, paidu, means teaches or trains or guides, fathers. This is what we're called to. Discipline our children. If we love them, if we care about them, this is, this is a role we play. And in Scripture, this word is almost always used in reference to children. And usually it's talking about education. It's, it's talking about preparation for temptation, preparation when hard times comes. It's building boundaries in our life to help us avoid temptation. This is when this word is used in Scripture. But then there's the word for punishes. Mestigio. It means this is the worst. This is, this is the type of discipline we don't like. This is punishes. It's flog or scourge. It's not popular for, for fathers to have this kind of love for their children. We love the idea of God teaching us and guiding us, but the idea of God flogging us, that's harder to swallow. Until you know that God flogs us in love. I don't know if this is okay to say or not, but I spank my sons. I hate spanking my sons. Like, it's one of my least favorite things in this world to do. But there is a point at which the boundaries I've set up in discipline have not worked and they cross those boundaries to the point where it needs more than just setting up boundaries. It needs more than just teaching. They need to feel that their actions will produce pain in their lives. They need to associate the disregarding of my father's instructions with a feeling of pain. And Hebrews tells us that that is love that is good for them, that is what is best for them. 
And if that's what's best for us, then in his pursuit of removing sin from our lives, God will discipline us and he will even punish us because he loves us that much. Then he continues. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. This is the blessing. This is the good news. Welcome to God's family. And whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? You have. You've heard a lot of these children. And you don't want to be anywhere near them. You don't want to be around these children. Whoever heard of a, of a father who doesn't discipline his children? Well, I know a lot of fathers who, instead of disciplining their children, shove an iPad in their face. You know how tempting that is? That is like a full-time temptation of my life. Deal with the issue or just distract them with technology. Actually love them enough to take the time to deal with and teach and discipline and show them love in the way that I am directing them or just distract them. Oh, you're tempted to do something? Hey, look, something pretty over here. Just distract. That is a temptation that Hebrews says we should avoid. I don't want to deal with the issue, so I'll escape the issue. And our world has an addiction to escaping. We use substances of some kind or other addictions or food or pornography or whatever it is to escape. I want to turn off my mind to reality and consume myself, not with God, but consume myself with something that will allow me to escape my problems. I'll escape the issue. That is not love. Escapism is not love, and that is not how God treats you. No, he didn't escape. He came to earth. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. Discipline's painful. I don't get to do what I want to do. I know there's a boundary there, but I'd like to go over there. That's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living. A harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Now, I think this is a little bit counterintuitive. Did you catch it? Right living is a harvest, not a seed. See, religion says that right living is the seed. If you plant right living, if you live correctly, then you can be a part of our club. If you live correctly, then you can be welcome in heaven. If you plant the seed of right living, then you will harvest a reward, a harvest a blessing. This is also the prosperity gospel. If you believe correctly, or if you believe hard enough, or if you act correctly, or if you remove enough sin from your life, then you will, re then you will harvest blessing. No. Hebrews says the harvest is the good work. The seed is God. The seed is Christ. We may think that right living makes us holy. Right living does not make you holy. You cannot live rightly enough to be holy. If we were going to have a discussion here and, and you were to push back a little bit and say, no, I don't think that's right. I think the harvest is a result of some action that, that is like a bigger action. And we'd have a back and forth. Eventually, we would get to the conclusion that it does not matter how much right living you plant, you can never harvest holiness. 
because it is God's love that produced holiness in you. It is him not escaping your problems, but coming to earth to die for your problems, for your sins. It is his coming here and facing the issue, his love that can produce your holiness. The harvest comes from God's seeds of love. God's love leads us to repentance. God's love leads us, produces right living. His love produces good works. So he says, because the love has been planted in your life, Christian, work at living in peace with everyone and work at living at living out the holy life. And most of us are like, uh-oh. Well, I kind of screwed that up. I lost that battle because I'm definitely not holy. But if you are a Christian, I say, yes, you are. You are not holy because you acted correctly. You are not holy because you removed enough sin from your life. You are holy because you were made holy by the only one who is holy. You cannot earn your holiness. It is a gift. Holiness is not about your actions. Holiness is about your relationship with Jesus Christ. We live righteously because we are holy, not to make us holy. The righteous living, the good works, are the harvest of holiness, not the seed. I could never avoid enough sin or do enough good things to be holy. If I try to be good enough to be holy or even to stay holy, well, now that I'm holy, i got to be good enough so that I can stay holy. No matter what, I will fail in that effort. Sin isn't about breaking a rule on a list. Sin is about breaking a relationship because it is the relationship that makes us holy. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. And this is why we say that our adoption into God's family, our entrance into heaven has nothing to do with our actions because we cannot make our, us, ourselves holy. It is only Him. God's standard for entrance into heaven, it's perfection. Good luck. Holiness or hell? Our reaction to this is supposed to be, I can't be holy. Our reaction to this is supposed to be, I can't be good enough. That's why he gave us thousands of years of watching the Israelites fail at it so that we would finally accept, okay, I can't do it. To which God says, exactly, you can't do it. So let me, let me give you this gift. So it is God who makes us holy. And then because that love has entered our lives, then we act in accordance with our holiness. Then I live in accordance to what I have become. I am not who I used to be. So I strip off the weights of the old man, of the old person that I used to be. And if I want to be most effective in my new mission as a Christian, I strip off the weight of sin and I act in accordance to the holiness that has been given to me. And he says, help each other in this. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. 
So the author is talking about a sin. There's some sin that could keep us from receiving God's grace. And I am guessing it's not one of the sins that you'd put on the top of your list as worst sins. When you're going through the list of all the bad sins, the sin that he is referencing is not the one you'd put. It may not even hit your list. Because we think of things like murder and rape and adultery and theft. That's what sins we add to our worst list. And yes, those are sins. But God says those are not the sins that keep us out of heaven. He says, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Bitterness? What does bitterness have to do with this? He's talking about discontentment. Don't allow it to to grow. Don't allow it to fester in your communities. What does discontentment make us do? It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? They had something good going. Actually, they had something perfect going, but they became discontented. Don't allow discontentment to change what you, the good things that you have going for you. It makes us turn from one way and go another way. The corruption here is convincing people to turn their back on God. And then he gives us an example of what this kind of discontentment, what this convincing looks like. He gives us an example. He says, make sure, and here's the big sinner, Here's the, here's the sinner that has been elevated above all the others. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. Remember the story of Esau? He's this tough guy out hunting, and he comes in, his brother is cooking stew, and Esau's starving. He's like, I'm going to die of starvation. Jacob says, okay, give me your birthright. Give me your inheritance from our father when he dies. And I'll give you this stew. And Esau's so hungry in his weak state, he says, fine. If I die, the birthright does me no good anyway. And he trades everything in his future for an instant gratification. He trades his eternal future for a pot of stew. And we look at the story and we think, no, wait a second. Esau was tricked. The center here is Jacob, right? Jacob tricked Esau. Jacob is the serpent in this story. So why are we using Esau as the example of the worst of the worst sinners? It is because the sin that will keep you out of relationship with God is the sin of not following him, of rejecting his gift, of, rege- of a- rejecting his birthright. That's the sin. That's the ultimate sin that will keep you out of heaven. That's the ultimate sin that will keep you out of God's family. It's rejecting your inheritance, rejecting the gift, and, fall- and being deceived. The message is that there will be a time in your life when you will be weak You will be tired. You'll be exhausted from the life you're living. And you will be tempted to say, apparently that all doesn't work. 
Apparently God doing anything, doing anything for me. There must, there must be a real God. God. There must not be a good God if bad things are happening. happening. And in your tired state, you'll be tempted to turn your back on the truth that you know and follow a lie. Somebody is going to lie to you and it's going to sound very convincing. Satan's lie to Eve in the garden was very convincing. Jacob's lie to Esau over the pot of stew was very convincing. And you know what? And you know what? Jesus was tempted in the same way by the serpent. Jesus is in the wilderness when he's getting ready to start his ministry. And he's tempted with bread. He's tempted with power. The Satan's using every trick in his book to try to tempt Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He starts quoting scripture. He was able to resist the temptation that Esau and Eve were not able to resist. And how did Jesus do it? He did it by setting his mind on things above. By turning his attention to scripture. And he started quoting scripture that would directly combat the lies of the serpent. He had so filled his life with truth that the lies could not penetrate. What is a lie that you've been believing? What is a lie that has made you gullible? Don't be gullible. Don't listen. Don't allow discontentment with the life that you're living cause you to believe the lies of the Satan or of our sinful world. Fill your life with him. Fully surrender. Give himself, give God everything. I surrender. Take it all. That's our message. God, I thank you for giving us a gift we could not earn for ourselves. I thank you for giving us the gift of love and grace that are seeds in our lives. I pray that you would nourish and water and develop those seeds into a harvest of good works in our life. That as we lead our families, as we interact with people at work, that we represent you well. That when temptation comes and that when lies try to convince us to turn our back on you, we will have so filled our lives with truth that the lies cannot penetrate. penetrate. God, I thank you for the calling that you placed in our life. Give us the courage to step into the mission that you created us for. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.